gather to worship Jesus with you this morning and to be given the opportunity to preach the gospel to you. It's a very whack sermon this morning, very different than usual, so hang with me. Number one, we are piloting use of a technology that we haven't used that I hope you will find really helpful, both to connect with the big ideas of the preaching and also to both hear and see the text of Scripture as we're teaching it to you. This is a pilot. This is a test. We're, we're, we're trying it today. Be patient with us. I think it's going to go fine. We've worked hard at this. That's what this screen is that's over here for the first time. All right, second odd thing about this morning. Normally, we just go deep in a single passage text of Scripture and mine that for everything it's got for you. Uh, we're going to be preaching through the biblical book of Galatians all year long, starting after Labor Day. That will be our normal rhythm week after week to do that. For the next few weeks, we have a few standalone sermons where we're tackling individual things. Today is one of those. We're going to be looking at uh, our hopes for this next year in the life of our church and our church planning network and with you. Let's talk about missional alignment for a second. One of the most helpful things in life is when you and the people that you are on mission with are perfectly aligned. You're thinking the same things, you're believing the same things, you're practicing the same rhythms, everybody's on the same page, all of your hopes are shared, and you're going for it together. That actually doesn't happen too often in life, but when it does, it's awesome. It breathes life into your soul. One of my favorite things about playing high school basketball in the super program that I played in, much better than Malden Catholic, by the way, was that everything was perfectly aligned. The freshman team, the JV team, the varsity team, the fall league team, the summer league team. Everybody was running the same offenses, 12, 15, stack, flex, all through your career. Everybody was running the same defenses, diamond, five, one. I'm 40, I, I still remember them because it was beaten into my head. They forced us all to pray the Hail Mary before every single game. Everybody was on board with that all the way through. There was beautiful alignment. We knew what the hopes of the team were. Play harder than the other guys. Hit the floor faster than the other guys. Give honor to the school with the way that we played. And of course, you better win. Sharing those hopes was such a joy because you were free to go. In love for you. And in love for the people that Jesus has sent us to. That's what we're trying to do with you, to see beautiful alignment between the church planting network that we're a part of, this congregation that Jesus has given to us, and your life as you live it in service of Jesus in greater Boston. So what I'm going to do this morning with you is to begin by articulating four of the hopes that our church planting network, it's called Acts 29, have articulated. And then walk through each of those hopes, walk through Scripture, ground those hopes in Scripture. 
if our hopes are not perfectly aligned with the words of God, then we're already off course. And also try and apply those hopes personally to you. If this goes well, you will walk out of here saying, yes, my life and the church that Jesus has given me to are hoping for and going for and shooting for the same stuff. All right, one other addendum. I haven't preached for five weeks, so if I have a lot of energy and I'm spitting on these two rows, that's why. Let's pray. Father, your word is life to us. We cannot live on bread alone. We need every word that comes from the mouth of God. You've spoken to us in Scripture. I pray that every word that I say would just be emerging from the truths of Scripture today and that you would burn in our hearts some shared hopes that would shape our year together. I pray that you would do this by your Spirit for your glory, for our joy. Hear my prayer and answer, I pray. Amen. Okay, so hope number one, let's just work these together. That we would plant churches that plant churches. Another way to say that is that we would make disciples who make disciples. Here's what Acts 29 is saying with this one. There is an endless array of good and biblical things that we could set our energy and our zeal to as a part of being a team of churches, an endless array of things. But our touchdown, the thing that we are going for together is to plant and to replant more gospel-centered churches. Okay, this hope, of course, emerges from what we call Jesus' great commission. It appears in different ways in different texts of Scripture. Here is how it is received by us in Matthew's Gospel. This is Jesus charging his disciples with what he wanted from them. And here's how he said it. Go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Okay. The central imperative of this commission from Jesus is to go and make disciples. The minute that a church stops doing that and gets distracted by other ventures, other priorities, other hopes, other gospels, other touchdowns, it has faded from what Jesus has instituted her to be. If I asked you, what is Seven Mile Road's touchdown? That's what we're going for. What's our first and biggest hope? You should be able to say to me, to see as many Bostonians as Jesus would give us becoming holy and healthy and happy disciples of Jesus. Now, the reason that we tie these two phrases so tightly together, making disciples, planting churches, is because they are necessarily tied together. If you wanted to get ripped, right? Matt Cruz circa 1996 on my wedding day, I had some muscles. What is the context that you would go about getting ripped in. Well, it's a gym of some sort, right? Back in those days, there was like two gyms in the whole area. Now there's hundreds and thousands of different places. You go to a gym 
where there's weights and there's dangerous looking machines and there's qualified trainers. Then there's bald dudes that are like this that are just yelling at you, come on, you baby, two more, two more. You spend time in those rhythms of gym and you find muscles building on your body, developing muscles, attending a gym. These things go and work together. That's how making disciples and planting and growing churches works. You cannot separate these. They are necessarily tied together. Now, at first glance, this verse doesn't say anything about church planting, right? Be like, Cruz, where do you see church planting in here? I just see making disciples. Okay, hold on a second. Go and make disciples is the first and the central command. That's the clause of this text. That's our hope. After it comes some supporting clauses that describe for you what that looks like, what that feels like, how Jesus wants us to go about doing that, and what comes after the central command to make disciples. We get baptize and we get teach, obedience. Another way of saying that is to say that we get the sacraments and we get the word and we get discipline, or calling people to obedience to Jesus. Now, if you were to go throw up in a really fat and dusty systematic theology written by a gospel-centered, orthodox, dead saint, you would see that the true marks of the church delineated as faithful preaching of the word, faithful administering of the sacraments, And many times, faithful discipline of the saints. In other words, what? Making disciples happens in the context of planting and growing churches. As we disciple people, teach them who Jesus is, what he has done, what he requires, care for their souls, love them, disciple them, call them to confession of sin, do these things, what happens is that happy, holy, healthy churches filled with disciples becomes the reality. This is why this whole postmodern American, oh, I follow Jesus, but I'm not a part of any of Jesus' churches. It makes no biblical sense at all. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be under the word, practicing the sacraments, becoming a holy person, in the context of Jesus' community. These things go together. And so with this hope we are saying, can we please not fade from the central mission that Jesus has given to us? Let's be single-minded about making disciples and planting churches to make more disciples. All right, so two questions for you on that this year. Number one, how are you being discipled? How are you being discipled with us this year? This is one spot every Lord's Day of your life, given all the complications of vacations and tragedies and stuff like that, you should be finding a way to be in worship with the saints, under word, around Jesus' table, to be built up by your pastors, by your friends, your brothers and sisters. You're being discipled right now, just listening and engaging and hearing. We do gospel communities in the life of this church, smaller groups of seven milers who get together for word and prayer and soul care and mission. 
We are making disciples of each other in that setting. Rob and Doug and Jeremy have done a beautiful job of discipling me as we've hung out after the last couple of years. We have something called tracks. These are year-long discipleship communities. So, for example, if you're a woman and you want to live out your femininity to the glory of God as a woman created in his image, we've got a track for that this year that's going to meet monthly on Friday nights where you can be discipled. If you're a mom and God has graced you to be raising sons and daughters to know him, we've got a community that meets here during the week to make disciples of our moms. If the Bible is brand spanking new to you and you go, ah, what do I do with this thing? We've got a theology track where you can spend a year wrestling with the teachings of Scripture, becoming a disciple of Jesus. Whatever it is, how are you being disciples this year. But not only that, who are you making a disciple of? The beautiful thing about the, the church of Jesus Christ is that, yes, there are officers, pastors who have responsibility to shepherd the flock, but we are a nation of priests, and we get to gospel and care for each other. I will never forget Christina Martindale worshiped with us for about a year and then her husband whisked her off to Southern California. I was like, man, all right, it's Southern California, but man, she was in a gospel community. Jesus had brought a young girl to faith. They built a friendship, and she said to me, Matt, is it okay if I just love and disciple her this year? I'm like, yes, that's my hope for this church, that we would love and make disciples of each other. How are you being discipled? Who are you discipling? That's our touchdown. It's why we exist. Let's do that together. All right, hope number two. Got to click a lot of buttons today. That we would continue to be serious about conversions, or whatever word you would like to replace in there. People coming to meet Jesus. You know that it is possible for a church or a network of churches to get so consumed with its own little world that we fade from engaging the world that Jesus has sent us to. You know that, right? Very easy to set up an insider culture where beautiful gospel stuff is happening here and to get satisfied with that and to stop praying and looking and thinking outside for who else Jesus intends to give grace to. Now, we may not feel that when that happens because we're like happy being disciple, got friends, love Jesus, got my church. But people on the outside will know if we have taken that turn away from mission. Have you ever gone to a movie or a restaurant or a parking lot or a football game and when you get there, there's a big sign up that says sold out. Maximum capacity. Full. How do you feel when you arrive there and that's what greets you? Kind of makes you feel like you're not wanted, right? Ah, I'm not on time enough. I don't have the right connections. I didn't have the special Willy Wonka golden ticket to get myself in. I'm not qualified to be here. I'm out. 
couple of months ago, Matt and I were going to grab an early Saturday morning breakfast to do report card conversation, stuff like that. The report card was good. We were going to talk about it. So Grace sent us to some breakfast place up on Main Street in Wakefield. We get there at 8.45. I'm thinking, woof, I got to be on time for this joint. We pull up, and it is completely filled, and there's a dozen people waiting outside, and we kind of stick our head in, and the waitress just gives me this quick, busy, occupied nod, 25 minutes, and she moved on. So we kind of looked at each other and said, you hungry? I'm hungry. You real hungry? I'm real hungry. So we got in our car, and we drove down to Kappa's in Melrose and had that French toast with the caramel and the pecans and waddled out of there. Do you feel what that waitress did to us? She was so occupied and consumed with what was already happening with her that her radar was not up for someone new, someone from the outside who would need to be welcomed, warmly, greeted, loved. In order to avoid that, we have to get our hearts to be serious, not just about who is here, but about who isn't here. Now, everything that we've done in the last two years together in the life of Seven Mile Road has been about this hope, right? We got to sustainability in 2010. By that, I mean we were filling up an entire church service with more people than this. We had some mature systems in place. We had 100% staffing of the nursery. That's when you know you've arrived as a young church. We could have just said, we're good. But comfortable sustainability was not our goal or our hope. And so what did we do? We bought a building and we started a church here and we planted a church in Wakefield and we're re-envisioning our mission in Malden and we're residenting a church planner for the next couple of years. Why? Why are we doing all of that outward-focused stuff at our expense? Because we're serious about people meeting Jesus. We're serious about those who have not receive the grace of God to be given an opportunity to receive it. Okay, let me give you a text on this. This is from the end of the letter of Romans. It's this beautifully theological letter that Paul has written to this church that was actually doing really well. And at the very end, he says, I'm coming to see you, but I'm not coming because something's wrong and I need to replace your pastor or correct stuff. You're doing great. I'm coming to see you, but I am on my way to Spain. I'm not there to interfere with your church. There are people who don't know Jesus yet, and I'm going to them. And he says it like this. My ambition is to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, and then he wrote this to them, those who have never seen, have never been told of him, We'll see. And those who have never heard will understand. Here he is quoting Isaiah's prophecy about the messianic age when the new covenant would come and the gospel would explode throughout the entire world. This verse is why Seven Mile Road started. This is it. Now, I know there is this criticism that we get sometimes that everybody around here is American and they live in the United States and we're a Christian country and they have already seen and heard the gospel. To that I say, have you met anyone from around here? We are a generation and a half at least now 
of Christendom and those realities and rhythms being gone from the culture of greater Boston. It's gone. If there was a biblical theology SAT exam, my friends and neighbors on my block would get like a nine. Can you get a nine on an SAT? Because they'd get a nine. Almost 100% of the things that they have heard and seen and been taught about Jesus and his gospel and his church are, are straw men. They're just, I just shake my head and say, no, that's not who Jesus is. The Jesus that they have heard about does not resemble the Jesus of the scriptures in a very real way they haven't seen, they haven't heard. And now that we are an established church and we are in full disciple-making mode of those who are here, we cannot fade from being serious about those who are not yet here. All right, here's our question for this one this year. Are we accessible? Are we doing everything that we can to make Seven Mile Road accessible to the average, ungospeled Bostonian? Can somebody come here and hang out with us and at least get a good taste and a good vision of the glory of the grace of God in the gospel? Now, by accessible, you know that we don't mean watered down. We don't mean compromised. We don't mean theologically shady or theologically light. That's not what we mean. We know that the gospel is offensive, right? We know that we can do a great job of gospeling someone, and in their heart, they can be disinterested in repentance. It's not our job to change hearts. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. I just mean accessible in the way that the pancake waitress wasn't. Are we helpful? Are we loving? Are we interested in people's lives and stories? Are we bold and clear about Jesus? Are we engaged with the spaces and the questions and the presuppositions and the idols that they would walk into our lives holding on to? I hope that we are committed, big and small, to being accessible to the point that someone will at least be able to step into eternity and say, hey, that church cared enough to notice me, to love me, to gospel me, to meet me where I was at. Let's be serious about being a church that can see people repenting and believing. All right, hope number three. Become a radically diverse crowd. This hope is actually a point of repentance for the network that we are a part of. For a while, Acts 29 was in danger of becoming a monocultural movement. By that, I mean a whole lot of sameness. The basic church planning pastor was an ex-jock with black-rimmed glasses and some tattoos and some facial hair and a library of books by dead guys like Jonathan Edwards and John Calvin and John Owen and Gregory the Great. Love to use those shun words. You know what I'm talking about? Predestination, regeneration. I already said presupposition today. I get a gold star for that later. You didn't know that? And everybody had all of David Crowder's music on their iTunes, which they played on their MacBook Pro. That was Acts 29. Now, that's all cool, 
except for the black hipster glasses. I'm not down with that. Unless what happens? Unless those external cultural markings become the standard and the norm and the expectation of membership. If we were to begin to do things in a way that offends or disregards, excludes brothers and sisters from different cultural backgrounds, cultural, racial, ethnic, whatever it would be, if in the way that you are living, you are sending a message to people who are not like you that you are not welcome here, that would fall very short of what the gospel calls us to. Instead, the Spirit of God calls us to anxiously and willingly welcome and embrace and connect with and befriend those who are different from us culturally. You know that the kingdom of God is going to be made up of a whole bunch of very different people who share one thing, a great Savior. Matt Chandler said it like this to us to explain this hope. Cultural and ethnic and racial harmony is central to being explicitly Christian. The scriptures would teach us that there are only two races of men. The race of the first Adam and the race of the second. It is only here in Christ that any of us find our true identity. Our different cultures carry history, traditions, legacies, styles, vibes. But the gospel transcends all of that and makes us one people. A family where we continue to value what is good and right in our culture but we submit gladly to the new family that Jesus has adopted us into. Then he said this, big time challenge. Producing homogeneous churches or homogenous churches can be done with relative ease and a total lack of dependence on the Spirit. Say it like this. If all you're asking me to do is to hang out with and to gospel and to be a part of a church with people who love the NBA and love drinking code red Mountain Dew and love watching the Pioneer Woman on the Food Network. Have you seen this lady? She is, oh, she's got this big kitchen on this ranch. She's throwing sticks of butter and pounds of brown sugar in everything. She has actually publicly embraced her calling as a mother and a wife while being brilliantly gifted and influencing culture. It's just like a dream. I love the pioneer woman. <laughs> if that's who I was hanging out with, I mean, Friday night was like reruns of Pioneer Woman, Code Red Mountain Dew, maybe some onion rings. I'd be happy. That'd be easy for me. But now give me somebody who loves dogs. Or even worse, cats. Somebody who really loves coffee. My boy Josh. Somebody who likes watching shows like Breaking Bad, which I had never even heard of until last week. Now things are a little bit different, right? How about your heart? See, some of you just decided that you do not like me very much anymore. 
You're like, Cruz is not down with dogs and coffee, and he just heard of Breaking Bad last week? I need to find another church. No, you don't. See, the gospel compels us to something more than comfortable, cultural sameness. It does. And so we are to be anxious for cultural diversity within the life of our church, our gospel communities, our church planning movement. To get there takes this, love, love. Okay, this is why Pastor Dan read Cornelius' story to you before. Let me tell you this, Cornelius was a Gentile. Specifically, he was Italian. Paulie and some of you can tell us what that means. It definitely means lasagna with big chunks of hard-boiled egg in there. That's what they were doing at Cornelius' house. That was his culture. The apostle Peter was Jewish from Galilee, very different cultures. The Spirit of God was at work in the life and the soul of Cornelius and his household. But he needed someone to step over a cultural barrier to love and gospel him that he might be saved. So God gave Peter a vision while Peter was in prayer on a rooftop. A sheet comes down from heaven with all of the culturally unclean, unkosher animals that Peter had never eaten before. And then amazingly, the Lord speaks to him and says, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And what does Peter say? Never. This is like me being in prayer for you guys, and the Holy Spirit comes and gives me a vision and says, Matt, rise and go to Joanne's fabrics. Rise and go waste money and time golfing. Rise in the morning and don't go to bed until after 10 p.m. Never, Lord, never. But the Spirit said, yes, yes, rise, kill, and eat. All of a sudden, there's a knock at the door. Boom, boom, boom. Peter comes down, and you know who is standing at Peter's door in the Medford business suit? It's Cornelius' crew. They've come over from Caesarea. They need to hear about this gospel. There's a moment of truth right here. What's Peter going to do? What's he going to do? Is he going to be like you when the vacuum cleaner salesman comes to your house? You dive behind the door when you see who that is. You're like, shh, nobody move. Don't turn on the lights. Try and wait that thing out until he's gone. Is that how Peter is going to respond when someone from a different race, a different culture, a different world comes to him. We get this text of scripture from the book of Acts. It's one of the most beautiful ones in there. Check this out. Then Peter rose and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa, that's the Jews, accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Wow. How beautiful is this? And when Peter gets there, he loves them, he gospels them, he preaches Christ, and Jesus saves that whole Italian household, marble tile and everything, all of them. 
Peter, gospeling Cornelius was this. It was an act of cross-cultural love. And it was the hardest thing Peter had ever done. What about us? Here's our question. Is there any Peter in me? Is there any Peter in you? And are you satisfied to say nice and safe within the cultural boundaries of what you prefer? Or are you willing to love and gospel and be in community with people who are super different from you? If the Holy Spirit of God has your heart, you can't wait for the knock on the door. In fact, you're not waiting for the knock on the door. You are saying, how can we plant churches among different people groups? How can I love my neighbors who are super different than me? Difference and diversity to one Savior and Christ is the kingdom of God. It's a huge hope of ours. And we have done beautifully with that over the years. We really have. Let's keep doing that together. All right, last one, last hope. That we would be known for holiness and humility. This hope also emerges from a place of repentance for the network that we are a part of. Acts 29 was founded in the 2000s basically by a bunch of 20-year-old American dudes and their wives. Now, when anything gets started by a bunch of 20-year-old dudes and their wives, you know that there's going to be a measure of sin involved, of immaturity, especially if it's Americans. Man. For our church planning network, that included a lot of sin. Things like vanity, theological arrogance, bad language, quarrelsomeness, just a general lack of tact, lack of gentleness, which is a heart issue, to name a few. Beautifully, and I mean beautifully, those sins that I've just delineated and others have been surfaced and they've been owned and they've been confessed and they've been repented of. At our annual retreat, uh, one of the speakers looked at everyone in the room and said, listen to me, adolescence is over. It's over. Here's what he means. We are under shepherds to a sinless servant, Jesus. And we need to keep making strides in holiness and humility, so much so that we would not be known as the network of this, that, or the other thing. But the first thing people would think of is, those are the guys who are so holy and so humble. So holy and so humble. Now, this has always been our ambition together at Seven Mile Road. You know that Greater Boston needs a church that is more than just good preaching and incredible music and a hip space and a lot of nice people. That's not enough. You know that it definitely doesn't need us showing up and acting as if finally a halfway decent church has arrived in the zip codes where we're planting. What it needs from us is to be a fiery, brilliant, bright light of holiness and humbleness that'll shine so bright in the dark and sinful and arrogant 
culture that we are a part of. Right, this, of course, is what Scripture calls us to together, right, in a, in a myriad of ways. Dan opened our service by reading to us this beautiful charge. These words come at the end of Jesus' apostle Paul's letter to Timothy, a young pastor. All throughout this letter, he is delineating all of the sins of the false shepherds that were harming the church that they were a part of. Things like quarrelsomeness and envy and vanity and pride and greed and deceit and hypocrisy. Read First Timothy, it was a mess. The very end of the letter, this is what he says to Timothy. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Okay, let's talk about the word flee here for a second. When you hear the word flee in your mind, what's the kind of context and picture that emerges? You could think of somebody like who just discovered a mouse, right? Flee like, oh, it's going to get me. I have to get away from this. I'm powerless. Somebody help me. Running away from something that is about to get you and, and hurt you. Flee is like a weak word of retreat. No. That is not what that word means here. Think of a prisoner who's been living in a jail cell. And I'm not talking about a Martha Stewart jail cell in Connecticut, okay? I'm talking about a Roman Empire prison jail cell. Nasty, dank, putrid, dark cell. And you've got a life sentence. That prison cell is your life for the rest of your life. Now imagine someone steps in and removes that sentence and the civil authority somehow declares you free. And the warden strolls over with his keys. He goes through his 263 keys and he gets out the one for your cell. Turns that lock. He throws that prison cell open. The light of day floods in there. Fresh air floods in there, he looks at you and he says, you are free to go. What does a sane prisoner do in that moment? Run, Forrest. This is Usain Bolt time right here, right? This is Friday at 5 p.m. on the job site. You flee that prison. You Run. You flee from these things that have defined your life for so long. The stench, the chains, the filth, the darkness. You flee into freedom. That's flee. Now what would make absolutely no sense at all in that illustration? For the warden to throw that door open and for the prisoner to not flee, to just stay there in that filth, to just remain chained and cold and alone. And yet that is what we do. That's what we do. What the Spirit of God through the pen of Paul is saying here is, Jesus has set you free from sin 
and the power of sin and the curse of sin and slavery to sin. Am I alone in here? Is it just me that has come to see that gospel to be true? Jesus has set you free. Now that you are free, flee from anything and everything that would keep you in that prison. Run fast, hard, every day away from that old life. He's invited you into something brand new. Of course, the other side of this verse is the pursue. These are all kinds of words that we just call holiness. Faith and love and godliness and purity and fidelity and chastity and generosity and gentleness and steadfastness. Run away from sin and run for holiness. It is our hope that these kind of things would mark the lives of every seven miler that Jesus would give us. That we would be the humblest of people. We didn't set ourselves free. We didn't lift the sentence that was on us. We did not rescue ourselves. We are not intrinsically good, decent people who do the right thing and pulled ourselves up from our bootstraps. No, we were useless. We were doomed. We were enslaved to sin. Jesus, from the outside in, came and set us free. How in the world can you stroll into a church proud when you bring nothing to your salvation? There's no room for pride in the gospel. And that we would be the holiest of people. Jesus has set us free from sin. How could we still sit there and sin? So here's our question for you on this point this year. Last one. What sin am I fleeing? Okay, you know your issues. Please don't sit in that prison cell. Maybe it's sinning with your money. We find that this happens all of the time. Jesus has enabled so many of you to prosper so amazingly. That's a gift of God. You don't keep yourself alive. You didn't give yourself your intelligence. You didn't get yourself your opportunity. Jesus has graced you to be able to earn money for a lot of good purposes, including the advance of the gospel. Some of you live in a prison cell of greed and selfishness and materialism for no reason. Flee this year. Now, that probably means giving a lot more money than you've ever given. Good. That's where holiness lies. Don't sit there greedy, materialistic, selfish. Ooh, that stinks. That's a prison. Jesus has set you free. Some of you are sinning sexually, and you need to flee because Jesus has set you free. And this is a big-time hard one for us, right? I read this great book called The Secret Confessions of an Unlikely Convert when we were on vacation. Beautiful book written by this woman. Beautiful confession of God's grace to her. One of the powerful sentences was, she said, Jesus had been after me for months, years. One day, I finally got up from the bed of my lover and walked downtown to a Presbyterian church, and Jesus met me there. I read that and I was like, that is a holiness jailbreak right there. Fleeing what Jesus intended to and had set her free from. 
Why would you continue in the filth of sexual sin when Jesus has set you free? Now we'll help you with that. We'll love you through that. We'll counsel you through that. But we need your heart to be running from sin. For some of you, it's less intense things. Some of you are just cranky. You're just cranky. And I know you're like, hey, man, I was raised in Boston. Of course I'm cranky. I've driven through a thousand rotaries, and I've paid a cabillion dollars in taxes. What do you want from me, bro? I get to be cranky. And when are you going to finish preaching already? If that's where your heart is, crankiness is a prison. It's gross. Jesus has invited you into a life of gratitude, thankfulness, contentment. Some of you need to flee crankiness this year. Start to be thankful and glad in Jesus. I don't know what the filthy prison cell is for you, but I want you to flee. It's my hope for you, that you would run. We would all be looking left and right and seeing each other running into the light of day, into the holiness of Jesus. I don't know what God will do as we pursue these hopes. I don't know if we'll grow or we'll shrink. I don't know if we'll have tragedy. I don't know if we'll have blessing. But I know that I want to run hard with you after these hopes this year and just put the rest in his hands and say, Father, do what you intend to do as we give ourselves to making disciples as we give ourselves to loving our neighbors, as we give ourselves to cross-cultural love, and as we run hard from sin, meet us in that place. I trust him to do that. Let's ask for his grace together. Jesus, your kingdom has no end. It has been inaugurated in your death and your resurrection and your ascension. We have been invited by your grace to be the sons and the daughters of God. There is life in your name. I pray that we would not settle for anything but being the best brothers and sisters, the best saints, the best church that we can be because you're worth it. You're worth our money. You're worth our time. You're worth our energy. You are so worth us fighting through conflict. You are worth us loving people who are super different from us. You're worth it. You're worth it. You have given us all things. It is out of your love and your grace that we live, and it is such a delight to do it. It is my prayer that you would double the size of this church this year because many are being discipled and many are being converted and the Holy Spirit of God is working a revival in our time and our place. But we are not counting heads, Father. We are content and satisfied in you. If you would just conform us to the image of your Son, I pray that in your love you would give us the effort to run hard after you this year and that we'd have some great stories of your grace next summer. Come and be big in our midst. We need you to do it. We throw ourselves upon your mercy. Holy Spirit, without your power and your wisdom and your counsel and your conviction, nothing happens. But if you would come and move, there would be so much beautiful change 
So we cry out to you in prayer for these things. Hear us and answer. Amen.